Hey guys, welcome to episode 95 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope this podcast finds you well. And if it does not, we hope we can provide you with a temporary escape from whatever life is throwing at you by offering up a really good case. We do want to take this time to thank everyone who has left a review on any of the podcast platforms that they use. Reviews are incredibly helpful to us when it comes to getting the word out. But really, we also appreciate the kind words that you give us and the fact that we have the sweetest listening community out there. Everyone is so nice and we couldn't ask for better listeners. So we just love giving you the appreciation at the beginning of every episode. I mean, let's be honest. They really are amazing. I mean, the the amount of support that we get from all of you is just, we can never thank you enough for that. And I know we say that all the time, but that is honestly how we feel and thank you for giving us a platform where we can continue do, doing yeah, and do what we like, you know, and this is where we want to be. Right. And, you know, it just that that drives us to keep doing it, because if well, if nobody liked you, then you should probably stop. Right. I mean, I get. Yeah, I, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, another thing you could do is help spread the word about the podcast to family members, friends, Reddit. Whoever you talk to the most. Anyone that will listen. Yes. (laughs) We also wanted to briefly talk about our Patreon page. At the $2 level, we offer one bonus episode a month. But at a $5 contribution level, we offer a sticker, two bonus episodes a month, and ad-free episodes. These are full-length bonus episodes, and they allow you to get one episode a week from us. If you would like to become a patron, you can join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. And one more quick thing before we get started, we wanted to congratulate one of our listeners who has been listening since we started the podcast in 2017. We wanted to congratulate her on her early acceptance into Columbia University. Congratulations, Elena. Your mother contacted us to let us know the awesome news and how we've been a part of family road trips. So we're so glad we can accompany you guys along the way to wherever you're going. And we wish you the best of luck in New York City. When you get the chance, you have to take all of your roommates to Carmine's in the Upper West Side on Broadway. Yes. Yes, that's a must. Yes. And bring your appetites. It is (laughs) so good. Well... Again, congratulations. Yes. All the best of luck to you. Okay, so are you ready to get started? Let's do it. The Driver family started Friday, September 29th off as they did every weekday during a school year. Joan and Stephen Driver sat and enjoyed their morning coffee and talked about where they would go out to eat that night as their three older children, ages 9 to 14, got ready for school. At their feet, their four-year-old son played. It was the chaos that came with suburban life, the chaos that the family was grateful for. The couple lived in a beautiful home in Clarence, New York, a wealthy suburb of Buffalo. Once the older kids left for school, Stephen, who was a chemistry professor at the University of Buffalo, had to leave the house around 7.50 a.m. in order to be on campus for his first class of the day. Joan kissed him goodbye and told him to have a good day. The couple had worked really hard to get where they were. Joan worked tirelessly as a nurse to support Stephen while he, 
who she met and married in Utah, took her to Madison, Wisconsin, where he earned his Ph.D., and then to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he wanted to complete his postdoctoral work at Harvard University. Finally, he ended up at the University of Buffalo, where the couple chose to start a family, and Joan stayed at home with the four children they would eventually have. However, Joan was planning on returning to nursing once her youngest began kindergarten. Joan left the family house just before 9 a.m. Once she dropped her youngest child off at daycare, she headed off for some much-needed personal time. She had three hours, and there was usually only one way the 45-year-old liked to spend that time. Running. Her favorite place to go running was the Clarence Bike Path, which was located conveniently only two minutes from their house. The bike path was a paved six-and-a-half-mile stretch built over old railroad tracks. Joan had a habit for always parking her car where the path intersected with the street she lived on, Salt Road. Unfortunately, as she got out of the car and chose to run east down the path as she normally did, she would have no clue that she would never see the family she loved so much ever again. Joan Driver had been very, very involved in the lives of her children. There was never an event that she did not volunteer for, or an, an event that she missed. This also meant that she was really punctual, which is why when Joan did not show up at the daycare center at the designated pickup time, the preschool teacher tried to reach her on her cell phone. But there was no response. She called the other number that was listed for the child, the work number of Stephen Driver. Eventually, she got through to campus security, who promptly alerted him to the situation. This was strange to Stephen, and when he tried to get in touch with his wife, he was also unable to do so. Stephen made the decision to call the Erie County Sheriff's Department to ask them to either begin searching for his wife or at least to perform a wellness check. As the deputy was being dispatched to the driver's house, Stephen made his second phone call at around 1.15 p.m. In his second phone call to 911, he told dispatch that he had decided that he would drive home as well to check on his wife. On his way home, he had to pass the parking lot that served as the intersection of his street, Salt Road, and the path itself. He knew that this was a location that his wife usually parked her car, so he looked around, and immediately he spotted her blue Ford Explorer. When he saw the vehicle, he stopped his own car and looked into his wife's. Inside, he saw a full one-liter Poland Spring water bottle. He knew her routine like the back of his hand, so he knew that this meant that she had not returned from her run. There was also a white pickup truck in the parking lot. Stephen Driver was told by dispatch to return to his house and wait for the deputy there and not to do anything further in the parking lot. He said he would. When Stephen got home, his youngest son and his preschool teacher were waiting for him there. He let them in and said that the police were on their way, but that he was headed back to the bike path to look for his wife. So 
here's the first like Stephen Driver's not listening to what the police are saying. They're saying, don't go. Like, just stay at your house. Because the one thing they're nervous about is if this woman is missing, there could be tampering with evidence. Right, exactly. I mean, but then the other side to this is, you know, he's a concerned husband that, you know, wants to know what's going on well with his wife. So, I mean, very hard to... It seems very desperate to find her. Yeah. Yeah. So, not knowing what to do, the preschool teacher also called 911. This is the third 911 call that is placed. And told dispatch that Stephen Driver was headed back to the bike path to look for Joan. Because of this, the responding deputy stopped at the bike path parking lot instead of the Driver household. When he got to the parking lot, he found it to be empty. There was no blue Ford Explorer and no white pickup truck. He reported this back to dispatch. He knew that Stephen was looking for his wife, so he drove up and down the bike path. Eventually, he ran into Stephen Driver, who was riding his bike down the path looking for his wife. At first, the deputy was relieved because he thought that maybe Joan had finished her run, everyone missed each other, and that they would find the Blue Explorer at home. Okay. Like maybe she had done a full lap and she just never did a full lap before and she didn't realize how long it would take her. That would be pretty, like, that would be a crazy scene to happen. Imagine everyone thinks this woman's missing and everything. Meanwhile, she just took a little long on her mile run. Right. (laughs) You know? Right. Like instead of doing half the path, maybe she did the whole loop. Right. So, I mean, that's what... The deputy was thinking when her car was gone, because if he reported her car to have been there 10 minutes prior and then he gets there and it's gone again, that's what you would assume. Yeah. But when they returned to the five bedroom house, they learned that Joan had not come home because as soon as they pulled in, the Explorer was not in the driveway. After that, the sheriff's lieutenant made the call that there needed to be a search of the bike path and the surrounding area. The hope was now that she was injured. It's getting, it gets scary when your best case scenarios get worse and worse. Yeah, that's that's true. That's what happens with a missing persons case. At 2.30 p.m., the search began. Many deputies searched the area surrounding the path using ATVs. Through the ATV search, the blue Ford Explorer was found parked near the bike path, but just over a mile away from the parking lot it was originally seen in. Now, this is not a parking lot. It was just the side of the road. A larger scale sweep was done that involved 80 firefighters and 11 surrounding volunteer places. But nothing was found. Helicopters were brought in from nearby Border Patrol with Canada, and again, nothing was found. The only brief shred of hope that existed was when scent dogs picked up Joan's scent in the parking lot, but it seemed to disappear in the parking lot. So almost as if like the trail stopped because she got maybe into someone's car, maybe? That's what people assume. Yeah, I almost feel like that happens a lot. Where, like, scent dogs have been used and the trail goes cold just super, like, abruptly, right? And you would imagine, like, okay, well, that can only happen if, you know, 
that person disappears. Right, exactly. Or like, you know, whether they're getting into someone's car or something. It's not like, you know, people could fly and all of a sudden, the, you know, it's gone from right. where the last, you know, where the scent ends. Because it's just odd. You know, so I don't know. Well, Steven Driver was questioned for six hours that night, mainly because they found his behavior to be very strange when he reported his wife missing then said her car was one place, but it ended up being in another place. Like at this time, they don't even know if maybe Steven Driver was lying about the car being in the parking lot to begin with. Now that that's also a possibility. So there's a lot of things the police are trying to work out here. Six hours, though, in an interrogation room is a pretty long time. It's long. But throughout that time, there was no signs of suspicious behavior. And after questioning Driver, he was released as a suspect. So they they knew right away kind of that Stephen Driver was not the person who was responsible for his missing wife. His strange acts in the beginning were purely acts of desperation to find her. The sheriff's department chose to focus on the investigative side of Jones' disappearance and not the physical search. And this was something that shocked Stephen Driver. He couldn't rest without searching for his wife. So the Sunday after she was reported missing... Remember, she went missing on a Friday morning. He set up a search party with neighbors and friends. Some of those who volunteered to help search were the same Boy Scout troop her son had been a part of and that Joan had helped on numerous occasions. The boys were searching the wooded area north of the bike path when, close to a bush, one of the boys spotted something. He yelled out to his troop leader, He could see a hand poking out beneath some heavy foliage. The troop leader quickly ran over and took the boys away so no one would have to see any more. The man stayed by the body and called 911 immediately. When deputies arrived on the scene, they secured the area. Crime scene investigators arrived quickly. Joan lay on her back. Her face was bruised and covered in blood. Her shorts had been taken off and hung from one leg. Her sweater had been taken off and placed on her midsection. Beneath her gray t-shirt had been lifted above her chest. It was a horrific crime scene. But there was one detail that the investigators could not take their eyes off of. Her neck. Two thin lines had been cut into her neck. A garrot had been used to strangle her. A woman murdered, her shorts pulled off, and strangled on a bike path. The investigators looked at each other. He was back. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The double ligature mark was something of a signature of the serial rapist turned serial killer that preyed upon the trails of the greater Buffalo area. He became known as the Bike Path Killer. However, he had not been active for just over 12 years at that point. Wow. Okay. It's a a long long time time. to lay dormant. 
but it was hard to ignore the similarities of Joan Driver's crime scene and that of the other women that had been murdered and raped. And to add to the similarities, Joan Driver was murdered on the 16th anniversary of the last victim's death. That's pretty interesting. The same day. Could it be a copycat, though? Well, that's what police were thinking. So because of all the time that had passed, this could potentially be a copycat. Only because I say that because it's kind of interesting that it would be on the anniversary of the last killing. But it also could mean that he's back or whoever is back. Right. He or she is back. Well, so this is what's going to happen. Joan Driver is going to be taken by the medical examiner and she's going to be examined. And at first they're thinking, okay, maybe this is a copycat killer because it's determined that Joan Driver did die of strangulation, which was how the victims of the bike pack killer did die, but she wasn't raped. And in all of his other cases, all of his other sexual assaults and murders, he had left his DNA behind. So he's not somebody who doesn't leave his DNA behind. But Joan Driver was not sexually assaulted. So they thought this was a little strange and different. But that also left them at a loss because they wanted to compare DNA to the other victims of the bike path killer because then that would connect Joan's case to theirs. Their only hope was the Blue Ford Explorer. Because Stephen Driver said he was not lying. That Explorer was parked on in the parking lot and then it was later moved. So the investigators are assuming that the perpetrator had to have moved the car. Yeah. So they're going to swab the entire car for DNA. Inside, outside, anywhere really someone's going to touch it a lot. Right. By the door, the steering wheel. The ignition. The ignition. And they end up getting a hit off of the radio dial. Oh, wow. Okay. So they do get DNA from the Explorer. And, and this is pretty scary, it's not a copycat. It's a match for all the other victims of the bike path killer. Okay. Wow. All right. So we have a serial killer on our hands that's back. He's back. After 12 years of being away and striking on a significant date, the 16-year anniversary of his last murder victim. Because he doesn't murder all of his victims. Okay. So the greater Buffalo area is now, again, terrified. It's pretty scary. Once the district attorney knew that there was another victim, a multi-agency task force was created to capture him. For one of the members of the task force um, from the Amherst Police Station, we're going to get into that a little bit later. His name is Captain Negrelli. His father and uncle actually worked the bike path rapist case before they had retired. So he vowed to get answers for them. And then eventually the man turned into the, to a serial killer. But it's just so fascinating that this is like a multi-generational investigation that's taking place against this guy. Yeah, because they never caught him and he's just going to continue to you know, go on his war path. Exactly. And really most of the investigators that are going to try and track this guy down, it haunts them. The fact that they had to retire without capturing him. 
because he did strike the greater Buffalo area. So it's not just necessarily one police department. He affected so many people. Oh, yeah. So before we get into the advancements of the Joan Driver case, let's discuss the known victims of this serial rapist and serial killer. So that means we're going to kind of go backwards because don't forget, Joan Driver is his victim after a 12-year dormant period. So we're actually going to go completely back in time. And the perpetrator that we're looking for today escalated from being a serial rapist to becoming a serial killer. And there were even vicious sexual assaults that took place between the murders as well. So it was always unpredictable as to how he would act in attack. We know his MO because the details given to investigators by the women who survived his attacks. He would approach the women from behind as they were walking or jogging on a path. He chose many different paths and struck at different times during the day. He also lacked a victimology, and all of these things made him really difficult to catch, and it created chaos in the area, because no woman felt safe. The no victimology thing is probably the worst in not knowing whether or not you were going to fall victim. There was no racial barriers that he wouldn't cross, no age barriers. His victims ranged in age from 14 to 32. Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to build um, a profile when someone doesn't have a pattern, right? I mean, if they're just doing... You know, if it's all based on opportunity, then it's really hard to kind of establish like when he'll strike next, who's his next victim. You know, it's hard to really gauge all that stuff when you don't know. So that's the scariest part about it. So after the man got close enough to the woman, he would wrap a cord around their necks. The ligature marks were always thin. So the police assumed that he was using a homemade garrote type weapon. He would pull the rope so tight that the woman would be completely immobilized. Some women reported that they blacked out. He would pull them off of the path or into a woodsy area of some sort, depending on where they were, and he would attack them with the cover of trees or bushes surrounding them. He would undress the women and rape them. It was reported in the book The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Bebby, which we which I used for so much of the research of this case. It's a wonderful book and I highly suggest that you read it. That in some cases he would do something pretty horrific. He would take the women in and out of consciousness during the rapes. So they would be gasping for breath and be scared all over again that they were still in the midst of their attack when they were coming back into consciousness. So it was like it was a torture that he did to them. And it's just a sickening detail that showed the lack of humanity that this man had for the women that he attacked. Oh, yeah. So just a little disclaimer here. The cases surrounding the rape victims are purposefully vague and we won't be using any of their names. And the reason that I want to do this is because I want to allow the survivors of these horrific events the ability to go on and not have to be talked about over and over again. And 
not allow that one event that should have never happened to them define their lives. So that's the reason I'm not going into too much details and not saying names. The first case the Buffalo area police received that they would connect back to the man who would later become the bike path killer took place in 1987. A teenage girl who had been walking to school was attacked. Another girl in 1988, two towns away from the second victim, was also walking to school. Usually she walked with a friend, but that day the friend was late, so she chose to walk by herself. The quickest way to get to school would be to take the train tracks. She said she had been walking on the tracks for about two minutes when someone came from behind her and grabbed her. She said the wire cut so deep into her neck that she had no idea what was happening and there was no way for her to possibly fight back. She reported that he tied her hands behind her back and laid her on top of them, so it was extremely difficult for her to fight. So that we know is probably something that happened with other victims as well. Yeah, I mean, and each time that he does this, he's obviously going to get better at making it impossible to escape right i mean that's just right. it's just common right i mean that happens all the time with more attempts he becomes better more proficient and yeah. more deadly and more dangerous eventually he is going to stop and leave the girl there she was able to run back to her house and call the police she worked with a sketch artist to give a composite sketch of the man that attacked her she said that he had olive skin and that he was either Hispanic or Italian and that he might have spoken with a Spanish accent. She said he had dark hair and that he had intense, dark, piercing eyes, something that every victim recalled, his piercing eyes. This victim has come out and given some interviews, and she has said that the fact that she was young and scared and not confident probably led to the fact that she didn't fight and maybe that's what allowed her to survive her attack yeah because some people get off on that and they just yes you know it makes it even like uh i mean i guess if you if when they don't put up a fight is when they kind of lose interest and want to like leave whereas if you fight back that's what they enjoy more it's so sick but that is their mentality and only <laughs> only they can understand why they like that you know what i mean it's uh it's pretty crazy actually but you would be surprised at how many people survive by not putting up a fight because they're they're not interested anymore right no i completely agree with that and there are details from other victims that when they stopped putting up the fight that he did lose interest so and later on down the road i mean we can assume that the reason why Joan Driver was not raped was because he had killed her before he could rape her. Like he had the garrote too tight around her neck and she was strangled to death while he was trying to pull her off the path before he could rape her. And obviously from what we know from these victims, he needs the fight. That's what he wants. What I'm thinking here is the reason why this one was the way it was, was because maybe he wanted so badly for them to fight back more that he was more aggressive. 
Well, I think it was just to immobilize them because now it's the middle of the day. You're in daylight. You're on a bike path where other people could potentially be. I think he just needed to immobilize, be aggressive to get them immobilized as quickly as possible. I mean, it is crazy that he's striking like this on a on a path in the daytime. It is kind of, it's ballsy. Yes. So the next victim that was attacked was on August 24th, 1998. The girl, 14 years old, had been walking to her cheerleading practice at the local high school when she was attacked. Her story, unfortunately, was the same as the women before her. At this point... All of the women have been attacked in different jurisdictions. And in the late 80s, as even now today, some police departments really don't share their information. So that's why this guy, they don't know it's the same person yet. But it was the final police department, this one, the Amherst Department, that connected all of their cases together. The investigators had been baffled by the fact that this attack had happened in broad daylight. So they compared this case with others in the area that had similarities, and immediately five cases popped up. And this began the conversation with other departments. The victims that had a rape kit performed after their attacks all had DNA samples taken from beneath their nails and on their persons. Skin cells and semen samples were found. However, this being the late 1980s, DNA sampling and testing was in its infancy. But they were able to perform a restriction fragment length polymorphism test, which determines if the samples are the same in all the attacks. So they can compare those samples. It's still difficult to match it to like another individual. And it was clear that they had a serial rapist on their hands. Women in the area were warned that they were in danger. This man had attacked women in their 20s, 30s, and three teenagers. They were attacked while they were walking alone in broad daylight. They instructed women to not walk alone and be sure to be on the lookout for a man that met the description that the victims gave. But months went by since the last attack, and people began to let their guard down in the greater Buffalo area. And on May 31st, 1990, the serial rapist struck again. At 7.30 a.m., a woman, 32 years old, was out for her daily walk on Ellicott Creek Bike Path in Amherst. As she was walking past the rest shelter, he attacked her from behind and she blacked out. Hours later, joggers found the woman semi-conscious in the brush beside the bike path and they called 911. The victim was so badly brutalized that she was unconscious for 10 hours after being brought to the hospital. I mean, that's crazy. And that shows how how aggressive and how brutal, you know, these, you know, these attacks crimes are and these attacks. Yeah, like, they're really bad. So taking a step back, the investigators realized that they're dealing with a calculating man who must lie in wait for an opportunity to take a victim. He must also be physically fit because his victims were. One was even six feet tall. However, he also had to be someone who fit in because no one ever reported a suspicious person before the attacks took place. The detectives of all of the affected areas would stake out the bike path and wait for another attack to take place in order to stop it and to catch him in the act. 
Despite their best efforts, there would be a third attack in Amherst on September 29, 1990. But this one was different from all the other attacks. It was the first murder. And remember, Joan Driver was also killed on September 29th. Okay. So this is the first murder. So that murder after his 12-year dormancy was on the anniversary of his first. First murder. First murder. Okay. That's why that date is so significant. September 29th. Linda Yalem had just transferred to the University of Buffalo from a college in Long Island. The cold was not something that the 22-year-old Southern California native was used to, but she had her heart set on getting a communications degree from the program at UB. Since she had arrived at the campus, she took daily long-distance runs on the Ellicott Creek bike path at around 11 a.m., That day, she chose to pop in Tears for Fears on her cassette tape player and start her run. At 9.30 p.m., her roommates reported her missing. They had had plans to go to the movies that night, but she never returned from her run. They knew something had to be wrong. The campus police contacted the Amherst police station once they realized that the last place that she had been seen was on a bike trail. The search for the missing college student began immediately and continued into the next morning. And it was then, at 5.15 a.m., that Linda Yalem's body was found by police officers. She was found in a clearing that was a few yards away from the bike path, close to a footbridge that went over the creek. Her nose and mouth were covered by duct tape, and she had the telltale double ligature marks around her neck. Her running pants and underwear had been taken off and were only hanging on by one leg. So that seems to be what he does. He takes just one leg of the pants and underwear off. Her bra had been pulled down and her shirt had been pulled up over her head. She had been left exposed and dead face pointing in the direction of the bike path that she had run every day for three weeks. Investigators were not shocked that their perpetrator had escalated to murder. Months ago, the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit had visited and helped them profile the kind of man that would commit these rapes. They warned the detectives that this man was getting very comfortable and confident with what he was doing. Soon the rape would not be enough he would escalate to murder. Rape is about control, and this perpetrator needed a lot of control. He showed that he had discipline and most likely prided himself in the fact that he was clever and patient enough to lie in wait for his victims. He certainly showed that he needed control when he not only raped his victims, but controlled when and for how long they were conscious during his attacks. However, after doing this so many times, it won't be enough. He would eventually want more. And unfortunately, that eventually was now. Detectives re-interviewed all the victims again. A few of them were too upset to relive the experience and could not give the interviews. Maybe there had been something that they missed that would help them catch this guy. They also issued a public statement to all of the women in the greater Buffalo area. They are dealing with a serial rapist, but now that man has escalated to murder. 
They urge the woman to not walk alone, travel with another person or animal. And most of these attacks occurred in the morning or during the early afternoon. So try to avoid walking or running during those times. Sketches of the suspect were also seen all over the bike paths and shopping centers. I mean, so at least they're getting the word out there. At least people are aware that the bike paths are dangerous and they're telling them what to do. I mean, as a police department, I mean, how else can, what else can you do for the public other than, well, other than catch the guy, obviously, but you know, I mean, that's the best that they can do. So, I mean. No, I agree with you. And this kind of goes into, uh, the theorism about serial killers and what to do. I mean, obviously this man has not become a serial killer at this point. He's a serial rapist that has one victim, one murder victim. But there's always that question of, do we tell the public and feed this man's ego or do we tell the public and make them aware and try to protect them? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm for actually letting the public know and even though that might fuel a serial killer right which is obviously bad but at least now the public knows every detail and they can you know they could take from it what they want and and do what they need to do right for themselves like to not let the public know i feel like is a, a disservice because they're there to protect and serve correct Right. So, I mean, if you're not letting them know that, then that's not a good thing. I see what so, you're saying. I don't know. That's just me personally. I mean, because think about it. I, I didn't. I never even heard about this. There, I've. There's so many cases that I've like been looking at, or you've been showing me, and I'm like, I didn't even know that it even happened. Yeah. Like what? So. Well, unfortunately, there's too many people that are messed up in <laughs> yeah. this world. But it's true, though. I, I think that that needs to be something that always happens is, is always to be informed, right? Right. And another purpose for the police keeping everyone off the paths, besides obviously for their safety, was because they were planning to go undercover. They had female officers on the bike paths during the times that he was known for striking obviously the early morning hours and the early afternoons he would lie in wait is what they were assuming so they also had other officers who were in camouflage uh ready to catch this guy if he ever did make an attempt on a female and they had the female officers jogging Wearing neck braces, but really thin neck braces with a zipped up sweatshirt really high. So first, he wouldn't be able to see that they're wearing neck braces, but they would also be able to breathe if he tried to grab them from behind. I mean, that's pretty smart, you know, because if he is lying in wait, I mean, that is the best thing you could do is to have these undercover officers just like right. walking and jogging down the bike path. And then you have the guys in camouflage at the same time ready to help them if these women if they needed additional assistance. Oh, yeah. Um, there also was other officers who posed as male walkers who would stop anyone on the path that matched the description of that the victims gave or if they looked anything like the sketch. The men were stopped and they were asked to give DNA samples and they all did. Now, this is actually funny because like we said before, this is when DNA was in its infancy 
And these guys had no idea how difficult it was to test all of these samples. So eventually the FBI had to contact the Amherst task force and let them know, please stop sending us hundreds of samples. We can't test them. The way you're supposed to do it is find a viable suspect, get his DNA, and then we'll test it. That's actually like they were trying to test everyone's DNA. (laughs) Test the whole town. Test the whole town. (laughs) And people really didn't understand the concept of DNA at this time, right? It's 1990. So they're just like, oh, okay, here you go. Yeah. It's not like how it is now. I'm sure it's. People are a little more wary of giving their DNA up. (laughs) That's true. Unless they're doing 23andMe tests. (laughs) Then people are spitting all over the place. (laughs) Hey, people want to know their heritage, Kay. Come on. (laughs) My God. All right. So the police infiltrate. Well, it did help us catch a serial killer, so I'm all for it. That is true. The police infiltrated the bike paths of the greater Buffalo area like this for just over three weeks, but they had nothing to show for it except a pissed off FBI lab. The lead Amherst detective at this point was frustrated. This man had committed seven sexual assaults, one of them being a murder. He was going to strike again. He just most likely knew the police were hot on his trail, so he was cooling himself off. The department had to lessen its resources that they were spending on the dormant sexual predator that they had on their hands and murderer. Weeks turned into months and months turned into years. But that did not mean they stopped working on it. Every tip and lead that came into the station was investigated fully and taken as far as it could possibly go until eventually the lead led to nothing. The head detective again reached out to the FBI. They agreed again to have their agents at the behavioral analysis unit look at the case if he came to Quantico and talked them through all of the evidence that he had collected up until that point. So he agreed to go there. The detective left Quantico with the profilers telling him three things about his case. First, the killer was escalating in violence. Rape was no longer enough for him. He had taken one life, and now that he had taken that life and he had the taste for it, he was going to take another. He would not strike again in Amherst. He, fe- he feels like that would be too risky because he just took two victims in Amherst. And he most likely led a very normal and unremarkable life. Right. And that's how he's able to blend in so casually and no one has ever pointed him out. Right. Makes sense. And the profilers were right. Two years after the murder of Linda Yellum, the bike path killer took another victim. One week before Thanksgiving in 1992, A man was out looking for thistles with his daughter in an open field just off of Exchange Street, which is now known as Salem Field in Buffalo, when he had seen what looked like a woman's body beneath a large pile of debris. He called 911 immediately. When the first responders got to the scene, they noticed beneath garbage bags, plywood, and a pile of rocks, There was a body of a 32-year-old female. She had been raped and murdered. Double ligature marks were present around her neck, which is why the Buffalo police contacted the investigators who were still trying to track down the bike path killer. Later, DNA would confirm that the man they were looking for was also responsible for the rape and murder 
of this wife and mother. However, the victim at the location puzzled. However, the victim and the location puzzled investigators. The victim's name was May Jane Mazur. May Jane had grown up around Greenville, South Carolina, in an upper middle class family. She was the oldest of three and attended private school and participated in dance lessons. She was known by those in her family to be a tomboy, preferring to catch bugs and ride her family's horse, Blackjack, who she won many medals with at horse show competitions rather than wear dresses. When it was time to go to college, she decided she wanted to be a physical education teacher. That's honestly the best gig out there. She attended the University of South Carolina for two years and then got a second degree from Lander University. While at Lander, she met David Mazur. David was from upstate New York, but chose to stay in South Carolina with his new wife. The two lived in Greenville, where May Jane got her first job as a waitress. However, what was happening in the kitchen was what fascinated her. She loved watching the chef's work. So when a spot opened for a prep cook, she took it. And soon she was the sous chef working at a country club and upscale restaurants all throughout Greenville, South Carolina. During this time, she gave birth to a baby girl that the couple named Christine. In late 1987, about six months after their daughter was born, May Jane began taking drugs again. Her husband stated that she had taken some recreational drugs in college, mostly cocaine during parties. But now, with an infant daughter at home, she was using it again. This was something that she would have easy access to in the upper-class restaurant world. However, taking these drugs for May Jane was different than it was for others. She had been diagnosed bipolar manic depressive. Like many who have this mental illness, she was able to maintain a healthy and episode-free lifestyle when she took her medication. But also, like many, when she felt better, she wanted to stop taking her medication. And that, her family said, was when her troubles would begin. That must be really hard. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, starting to do drugs again on top of, you know, some issues that you might be going through. And um, that sucks for the person and for the family, you know, and, I, and that's sad. Because I feel like like cocaine, it's like such an upper. It's like it's going to make you feel a certain way and then compound that with her bipolar. I feel like that might have some serious effects as well. Right. And then um, one problem is going to be that she's not just going to recreationally use cocaine anymore to like stay up late to work at the restaurant. She begins using crack cocaine. So that's pretty bad. Can I just make a statement here? Why do you I, may. Why do I feel like in the 80s? It was just like totally normal to just like whip out a bag of cocaine and just start doing. Well, that was it was it it was social. I don't want to say socially acceptable, but when you hear people talk about cocaine usage in the 80s, people say that everyone used cocaine. Right, That's what I'm saying. Like, that's what I've heard, too. Like, you know, everyone's told me that. Well, I think that what happened was is that she probably recreationally used it in college every once in a while. And she did have positive effects from this drug and she used it every once in a while there was never an issue 
So then when people are using it in the restaurant world, she thinks in her head, okay, I used to do this in college and it did keep me up all night. So this would help in the restaurant world when I do have to get all of this stuff done. But then she became addicted. And then on top of that, she stopped taking her medication. Yeah. I think it was a slippery slope. Yeah. So David reported that May Jane would leave for three to four days at a time. And while she was gone, he had no idea what she was doing. David recalled to author Michael Bebe, the one who wrote the book Bike Path Killer, that once she cashed their $1,500 tax refund check and spent it on drugs in two days. He stayed in the marriage until the spring of 1991, when he took his daughter and drove to his mother's house in Dunkirk, New York, which is located about 50 miles south of Buffalo. When May Jane joined them 10 months later, she was sober and pregnant with another man's child. She gave birth and gave the baby, a boy, up for adoption and a Buffalo hospital. After she gave birth, she went back to using drugs. She would live between Buffalo and her husband and child. So she would just kind of go back, come and go in their lives when she was sobered up and then she would go on another binge. And It's pretty sad. It's a really sad life. So this arrangement lasted for about a year until July of 1992 when May Jane stole David's car. He reported it missing to police and when it was found with May Jane, he said that he would agree to drop all charges if his wife went to a 28-day rehab facility. This would be her third 28-day stint in rehab. In her diary from rehab, she talked about how she wanted to get better and how she didn't want to die. But it was also in rehab that she met a man, a man that would later become her pimp. Once the 28 days was over, her and her new boyfriends checked into a hotel and May Jane was forced into prostitution and uh, the money that she got was used to buy herself and her boyfriend at the time drugs. And of course, the two quickly became addicted again. David had no clue where his wife went after rehab, so he filed a missing persons report. Eventually, she called and he went to the hotel to pick her up, but she wouldn't speak with him when he got there. So he left without her. And this was in late October, and she's going to die about a month later. In the months since she left rehab, she had been arrested twice for prostitution. May Jane's last contact with her family had been two days before her murder. She had called her mother and told her that she thought something bad was going to happen to her because of the way she was living her life. She said she felt unbelievably guilty about giving her child up for adoption, and she also made her promise to help take care of Christine if anything were to happen to her. Unfortunately, something did happen to May Jane, but it wasn't the drugs or her boyfriend turned abuser and pimp. It was the bike path killer. As a very sad aside, clearly David and May Jane had a complicated relationship, but he never divorced her and he continued to love her. Christine recalled that her father taped the news footage of her mother's body being placed into an ambulance and that he would watch it over and over again. 
See, I feel like that's guilt. That's must, so sad. I mean, it's so sad. I mean, that's that's guilt because, I mean, why would you want to relive that moment all the time? I feel like that's him wishing that he could have done more no. know, to help her. Yeah. And that's what that is. That's really, really sad. Well, May Jane Mazur confused investigators. If it wasn't for the double ligature marks and the matching DNA, her death would have never been linked to the bike path killer. Because her murder and circumstances were so far outside his already established M.O. The other women had been students or career women. They were in shape, healthy, running or walking to improve themselves. And May Jane was many amazing things. But unfortunately, circumstances in her life led her down a road of drug addiction and prostitution. She was operating out of a hotel near where she was found. This rape and murder was outside of his comfort zone. His crimes up until this point had been committed in quiet suburban bike paths. Here they were, a city street, a few hundred yards away from them. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that he's maybe, like, changing up where he finds his victims. Because, I mean, eventually, if you continue to take people from the bike path and and do what you're doing, you're going to get caught. So yeah. this, I feel like this is him trying to change up his strategy a little bit and going outside his comfort zone. But at the same time, he he's less likely to be caught. So it's kind of like... No, know. I completely agree with you. I think... And this goes back to what the agents at the BAU said is that he's not going to strike an Amherst again. Exactly. And he seemed to go completely the other way. Here. Yeah, I mean, he's taking people out left and right too. Like, Yes. Know, so he has to continue... Like, to change up where he's, like, pretty much stalking, raping, and killing these women. Yeah. So. Well, this murder left the greater Buffalo area terrified. It seemed as if the man was not giving away that he no longer had a victimology or an MO. He had become adaptive. But again, he would wait two years until his next attack. This time, he went back to his familiar MO. A 14-year-old girl was walking home on her way from school when she was attacked from behind and dragged into the woods where she was raped. The girl survived the attack and was able to make her way back to her house where she and her parents called the police. She was brought to the hospital where a rape kit was performed. The DNA collected from those swabs and samples were a match for the bike path killer. However, something had changed. This DNA match was aspermic, meaning that the provider of the sample did not have any sperm in his semen. And this meant that in the, these two years since the attack on May Jane and this girl, that the bike path killer either had a vasectomy or he went through chemotherapy. Oh, wow. See, now that's... that's um. Interesting. Interesting because did it let's just say it was a vasectomy was that done on purpose? Oh. Kinda Maybe. like kinda like, like Well it a, could correlate with his regular life as well. I mean that's true too. I mean I don't wanna just say like that's the reasoning for but I mean that would be I, I but would that even help him get away with like DNA? Well not really, because like, they could no. still it, gets, it just means that like this is going to help them with their catch their guy. 
I see what you're saying. Because now so if it they have a suspect, it, right? It kind of um, makes that circle of suspects smaller. Correct. Wow. So okay. like they can get a suspect, and if he didn't go through chemotherapy or get a vasectomy, then most likely he's not their guy. Right. Okay. So the investigators worked to pursue every lead they could with the information, but again, they hit a brick wall. More time passes with no new attacks. And when two years passed again, investigators were nervous that the bike path killer would strike. But he did not. Then those two years turned into 12. Buffalo and its surrounding suburbs were back to normal. Most of those who walked, jog, and rode their bikes on the paths had no idea about the bike path killer, except as some old legend of what had happened over a decade prior. But by now, the man was either dead, moved on, or in prison, so there was no fear. And then, on the 16th anniversary of Linda Yellum's murder, Joan Driver had been killed. And that's where we left off before. I like I like that we took that little deep dive back. You, you like that to see all these cases and how they're. You like how relevant. I set the stage for you. I do. I do. <laughs> um, so now we do have several rapes under um, the crimes that he has committed and three murders at this point. But I will say this um, also to just comment on what we were saying before. Even though this has limited the pool of people that it could be, right? Right. It, it must have meant nothing because he got away with it and didn't kind of didn't rear his ugly head for years. So it sucks because that even though that was such a like a good win for investigators, it did nothing because well, they didn't get him. Right. So it did nothing. Yeah. But I think it'll do something later on down the road. Possibly. Which will help. Yeah. So a task force had been set up to investigate the bike path killer. He had been dormant for 12 years, but was back, and maybe some fresh eyes and advancements in technology would help them finally solve the case. The task force was established by the Erie County Sheriff, Timothy Howard. Their job was to go over each rape and murder that had been committed. He hoped that maybe they would find something that had been overlooked. The joint task force would include all of the information held by the Erie County Sheriff's Department the Buffalo Police Department, and the Amherst Police Department. This way, no information was missed. Besides looking through all evidence again, the task force set up a tip line. As soon as the lines were open, they, got, they immediately got 1,500 tips. It was overwhelming, but they looked into each one of them. The one way that technology was on their side was that there had been new advance, advancements made in DNA testing. They could now test the perpetrator's DNA and they could run a biogeographical DNA test to determine which ethnic background he was a part of. And when the test came back, it determined that he was Hispanic. So the detectives on the task force began pulling Hispanic names from their suspect list. And this is when the FBI's BAU is asked to join the task force. They were there to help them link the methodology of this man to other potential crimes. When the agents from the BAU took a look at their case files, they couldn't help but get stuck on the first attack, the first rape victim. They said, it's too smooth. Everything went as planned. This rarely happens. He made no mistakes. 
and he made no mistakes in the early rape victims. In fact, there had been no hesitation committed in his crimes. So this led them to believe that these had not been his first rapes. Okay, so the the first rapes, quote-unquote, were really not his first. Correct. Okay. So this prompted them to look into old case files, solved, cold, anything and everything that matched the same M.O. as the bike path killer. And they found a case that described a series of rapes that took place in Delaware Park, which is located in Buffalo. And these series of rapes stretched from 1981 to 1985. The man said and did the same exact things that were described by the surviving victims of the bike path killer. He had been responsible for those rapes as well. And if it was really true, that meant that he was really responsible for upwards of 15 rapes since 1981. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. But it's actually, it's it's great they have pieced this to something else because it just builds more of an evidence, you know, I guess evidence right. against who did it. You know what I mean? Well, there's one major problem. Uh-oh. Okay. A man has been arrested for these crimes. Okay, that, that sucks because what it... <laughs> okay. Anthony Capozzi had been named the Delaware Park Rapist. He was in jail for all of the rapes. He had been convicted solely based on eyewitness testimony and had spent the past 21 years in Attica. Members of the task force, along with members of the BAU, went to speak with Capozzi. They realize quickly that the man they are meeting with has diminished mental capacity, and it was hard for him to follow a conversation or line of questioning with them. So, I mean, what are the chances that he's this criminal mastermind here? They asked him if he committed the crimes he was accused of. He told them no, he would never. He had sisters, and he would have never been able to do that. Then he asked them if he could cut their meeting short because it was spaghetti night and he didn't want to miss the meal. I mean, at this point, right, I mean, I mean, how old is this guy? I mean, he's been in there for 21 years, right? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, he's probably on the older side. Yeah, he's in his late 40s. I mean, at that point, you're just so groomed into the process of being in prison. That's what you look forward to. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't blame the guy, right? No, I mean, I'm just <laughs> saying that shows yeah. that, like, he's... It also shows his diminished mental capacity correct, correct. that he can't even comprehend why these men are here. He can't follow the conversation or even understand that they're maybe trying to help him. Right. And then he can get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the investigators and the agents walked out of Attica knowing that the wrong man had been put away for those crimes. They urged the DA to look into them again. They read the case files again and came across something pretty interesting. One of the survivors, a young woman who had been attacked in 1981, had been nervous to leave her house because of what had happened to her. To cheer her up, her whole family took her to the mall so she could go out and feel safe at the same time. But when she went to the mall, she came face to face with her attacker. First of all, what the hell are the chances of that? <laughs> it's pretty slim. That is so sad. Yeah. It's pretty slim. Don't worry. You're safe when you go out. First time you go out, you run into your rapist. I mean, that's... Jesus. Yeah. This poor woman. He was 
the rapist, he was with a woman and the woman was pushing a stroller with a baby. Oh, my God. So she just stared at him, frozen in fright, and he recognized her as well. So he moved the woman he was with as quickly as he could along back to the parking lot. She rushed to tell a male relative that that was him, like that was the man that raped me. And the relative chased after the man. But instead of like having a physical confrontation with him, he just wrote down the man's license plate. Okay, I mean, that's smart, right? Not get into a physical fight with somebody. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, even though you'd probably want to. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But yeah. A few days later, the woman had written a letter to the detective that was working her case. She explained what happened and even wrote the license plate down. But at that point, the investigators already thought they had their guy in Anthony Capozzi. So her letter was just put back in her file. The task force investigators ran the plate in the system and it came back as belonging to a man named Wilfredo Carabello. The man was brought into the station for questioning and he denied using the vehicle to go to the mall ever. He allowed them to take his photo. The picture was shown to the victim, but she was unable to identify Carabello as the man that attacked her or the man she saw at the mall that day. Then another lead comes up. A local worker called the Amherst police station regarding the Linda Yillam case. He said that one of his co-workers looked very similar to the sketch that they were looking for. His name was Altimio Sanchez. He and Sanchez both worked the graveyard shift at a brass factory. Another thing that was strange was the fact that he had seen Altimio the day before Linda's murder walking on the bike path. And when he went to wave to him, Sanchez acted like he had no idea who he was. And he thought that was quite strange. Now, it seemed like this guy had been suspecting Sanchez for a while because he also added that when the two other rapes took place and the one murder, that Sanchez had been off of work that night. Oh, really? Okay, so now, yeah, now there's... He's not at work, so what could he be doing, right? Yeah, and he works nights, so he would have to be off like during, during the, the day. day. Right. <laughs> so Sanchez was also brought into the station and questioned. He did not match the description that they were looking for, but they asked him to provide fingerprints for them because a water bottle had been found next to Linda's body and they wanted to compare prints. However, they ended up not being able to match the fingerprints his fingerprints to the water bottle. They just really didn't suspect Sanchez, so they let him go. They thought maybe his coworker was just a little conspiracy theorist. A few days later, a call came into the Erie County Sheriff's Department. It was Wilfredo Carabello. He asked to speak with the detectives that had spoken to him. Once he got them on the phone, he told them that he knew why they were asking around about his truck And the truth was that he hadn't been driving the truck the day in question. He had lent the truck to his nephew and his nephew's wife to borrow to go to the mall. Who's his nephew? Altimio Sanchez. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. This is getting good. Yes. So the entire task force was called in the following day to catch everyone up. They needed to get everything together. The evidence, the correlation of time off. It was tricky because 
Sanchez wasn't being connected with one of the victims of the bike path killer. He was being connected to one of the victims of Anthony Capozzi, who was in jail. This is the 1981 victim. Right. So it's hard. You're not going to be able to get a warrant because it's going to be a too too complicated and long of a process to get a warrant to investigate a crime that has already been solved. And, right, and, and someone's it, in jail for that right. crime. So they decided their best bet was to collect abandoned DNA. So they tail Sanchez all day, and eventually he goes out to eat with his wife. And as soon as they leave their table to pay the bill, an undercover detective approached the waitress and the busboy and said, don't clean off that table yet. And they collect a glass that he drank from, a straw, and a napkin. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So they actually got it from the restaurant. Yes. That is so smart. Because you have you've abandoned your DNA, so that they're allowed to collect it. Same as like your trash. Once you abandon your trash, it's they don't need a warrant to search it. That is smart. So they sent the DNA in for testing, obviously with a rush. The next day, the results were in. The whole task force was there to receive the news as the lab technician was put on speakerphone. You got him, she said. Ooh, oh my God. The DNA was a match. That is incredible. Altimio Sanchez was the bike path killer. Sanchez was pulled over by police and arrested without incident. The 48-year-old father of two was brought into custody. He would not speak and just kept repeating the same phrase to police when they would confront him with all the evidence they had against him. That's what you say. That's all he would say during his whole in, like interrogation. They would say, we got DNA on on 15 girls. That's what you say. Like, it would drive them. It was driving them crazy. Is it because he just was like, he thought like he wouldn't be caught? Or did he, or, or well, what I'm trying to say is, did he really think that there was no evidence against him? Or... No, he knew the evidence was against him. What the profilers are going to say later on is that obviously Sanchez is a complete narcissist. So being confronted with all of this stuff is a a failure. So he's denying anything because that would make him a failure. Gotcha. So in a separate room, detectives questioned his wife. She was in denial about the fact that her husband and the father of her children could have done these things. However, the more and more police talked to her, it was impossible for her to not see the connection. For example, they knew the exact year that he got his vasectomy. For example, they knew the exact year he got his vasectomy. And she just couldn't deny that. Yeah, right. And the DNA samples. So she eventually begins talking to the detectives. All of the victims... And the families of the deceased victims were contacted. They were told that they had caught him. He was off the streets and they would never have to worry about him again. Years and years of fear and anxiety lifted from their shoulders. And that must have been an incredible feeling. Oh my God, yeah. Imagine imagine this whole entire area since, what, 81 Imagine everyone's afraid to go on a bike path. 1981 to 2007. That's what I'm saying. That's a really long time. Like, so, I mean, you got to think. 
these people were in fear of going out, going on the bike path, you know, just walking out during the even during the daytime they were afraid. Like that's yeah. crazy. I mean, it all took place during the daytime, but what I'm trying to say is like that's an incredible thing right there. You were striking fear into people so much that they were afraid during the day. Yeah. That is a, uh, I think, a testament to how brutal he was and what he left behind after every single rape and murder. Oh, I agree with you. You know? So the next thing the task force tried to focus on was releasing Anthony Capozzi. Although it took a very, very long time, and only what I can explain as bureaucratic bullshit, Capozzi was released. His family was overjoyed, and he was awarded $4.25 million for the 22 years of his life that he lost. I never think money can compensate for time. And I think what an the insult to injury that was added to this Capozzi case was the fact that the police department and the district attorney's office did not want to admit that they made a mistake, even though the DNA from all of those rapes matched Altimio Sanchez. They did not want to let Anthony Capozzi out of jail. This poor man who should have never been placed in jail most likely was bull rushed in the investigation because he had diminished mental capacity. Like, that's just so sad. I mean, and especially on eyewitness, testi- uh, on, uh, eyewitness testimony, that's your only reason, that's your only evidence. Yeah. I find that bizarre, and don't even get me started with that. You know how I feel about that. I yeah, hate that. I, it's so sad, and I feel bad for this man, but him and his family, like, being able to hug, it was very, there's news footage of it all over the place. It's very emotional. So I'm That's just, great. I mean, at least yeah. he's out, and, you know, yeah, I'm glad he got compensation. At minimum, at least when he comes out, he can take care of himself and his family. So Right, right. And this task force is truly incredible. I mean, if you think about it, they they found the bike path killer, but they also freed an innocent man from jail. Yeah. And they brought justice to all of those victims. That's true. And their families of the ones who did not survive. So it seemed that the BAU of the FBI was correct in their statement that the killer would be unassuming and unremarkable. Sanchez worked as a machinist at the American Brass Company and was married with two children. He had first lived in Florida, but then moved with his family, his mother, stepfather, and three siblings to the Buffalo area when he was still in school. He served as the baseball and basketball coach for his children. He played golf and liked to garden. He also, in one of the biggest dick moves of all time, registered to run once in a fundraiser run that was dedicated to the memory of one of his murder victims, Linda Yalem. Ugh, what a scumbag. That's such bullshit, right? <laughs> After learning of what her husband had done, Sanchez's wife served him with divorce papers in 2007. I expect nothing... Um... Less Less. than that. Good job, Kathleen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the statute of limitations had run out on a number of the sexual assaults that had been committed. But for all the cases that remained open, both the sexual assaults and the murders, Sanchez pleaded guilty. It was clear that he was going to be found guilty regardless of his defense because of the overwhelming physical evidence against him. And this is most likely why... He went with a guilty plea. 
During his sentencing hearing, he did issue a public apology to his victims. Some of the rape victims bravely sat in the courtroom and listened on, as did Stephen Driver, the Yelam family, and the daughter of May Jane Mazur, Christine. The family members of the murder victims would be able to make a victim impact statement, something they all chose to do. Their statements were emotional and gut-wrenching. In the end, Altimio Sanchez was sentenced to 75 years in prison. In 2007, at 50 years old, it was clear that this man would spend the rest of his life in jail. He currently resides at Danamora Prison in upstate New York, which I'm sure you have heard about from the daring escape of two prisoners in 2015. Sanchez was actually on the same block. Lots of fun fact. I didn't know that. Yes. So again, just to wrap up some loose ends that I feel are there. Um, Sanchez did claim, he tried to claim that he didn't rape Joan Driver because a higher power had told him he should not. In reality, we know the real reason was because he had suffocated her before he had time to rape her. This wasn't, um, some release that he granted her. Like he tried to make it seem like he chose not to victimize her in that way, which is an insult to her, her family and all his other victims. And also the 12 year gap. Sanchez is going to claim that he was able to control himself. He could control his urges. So this wasn't this insatiable need to rape and murder people. He chose to do this. That's what he said. Which is worse. And he chose to do it on the anniversary of Linda Yellum's murder. Yeah. Which is, he's so disgusting. Actually, I take that back. I don't know. I don't think it's all bad. It's all bad. It's all bad because. But the fact that he's saying, I I consciously chose to do this, to hurt these people. And I chose the specific date for a reason is like all kinds of conniving and evil, like how evil he is. And, you know, I like ending the story with a good they got him. But I love the fact that we can end it with the victims of his sexual assaults and the family members of the murder victims survived what happened to them. And now they can rest easy knowing that no one will ever fall prey to this evil man again. Like he is in jail. He's an asshole. And he's off the streets. But he... From 1981 to 2007. It's a long reign of terror, but it's it's over. And another man even went to prison for it. That's true, but it's over now. Yes. And he was freed, and he has rejoined his family. So that is, uh, you know, the silver lining. Yes, it is. So that is the, the bike path killer, and he is a, a, one of the lesser known serial killers, but um, the devastation that he caused is unbelievable. So we're glad he was caught. Definitely. All right, guys. So um, that's the end of episode 94. I know I said 95 in the beginning. I screwed up. You did up. say 95. I know. I always screw up the number. I don't know why I, I do that. I don't know either. But it's okay. I screw up names all the time. That's why I don't read. <laughs> okay. Um, and again, guys, if you want to join our Patreon page, you can do so at patreon.com slash couple. Be sure to subscribe. Write us a review. Um, say hello to us on Instagram or Twitter. We're always there. And uh, we hope you have a good week. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys.